turn to likely the most favorite missed passage, or at least one of them, about the resurrection in the epistles. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15. I will read the first 20 verses and then skip ahead to the end of the chapter and read verses 50 to 58 as well. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll begin first of all at verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, uh, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, We are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let's skip ahead to verse 50, the end of the chapter. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In response to this reading of God's word, let's turn back to Psalm 16. We'll read uh, the verses as put to music. 
which the Apostle Peter applies directly to Christ and his resurrection uh, from the grave. Psalm 16, stanzas 4 and 5, about how the Holy One, Jesus Christ, will never see corruption. In our second services, we work through the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, which is an accurate uh, summary of what God teaches us in his word. And we've been working our way through the Apostles' Creed. Uh, We heard a couple of weeks ago about our confession that Christ uh, died and he was buried and he descended into hell. Uh, This week, we come to Lord's Day 17 uh, because we don't confess our faith in a dead Savior, but a living Savior. So this week, we read about uh, what we confess of Christ's resurrection. I'll read the question and answer, and you please confess along with me in your heart. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he could make us share in the righteousness which he had obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are raised up to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. This is our confession based on God's perfect word. <clears throat> so brothers and sisters, this past week I, I listened to a story of a man who had once, for quite a time, 
been a committed atheist. He felt that absolutely there was no evidence for God. He especially believed that there is no evidence for an all-good, all-powerful, all-knowing God, like the Christian God. He describes his time as an atheist, as uh, an angry and self-centered man who had a tendency to drink too much, to take things out, his frustrations on his family. He humbly admits that it got so bad at one point that when he would come home from work, his five-year-old daughter wasn't excited to see him. Instead, she would quietly slip into her room to avoid his temper. And this man shared the story of one day when he received what he considered to be some very terrible news. His wife sat him down and said to him, A few months ago, a friend spoke with me, and with me she shared her faith in Jesus Christ. His wife said to him, I've been going to church, and I've decided that I want to profess my faith in Jesus Christ. I want to follow Jesus Christ too. And what an awesome thing it is to publicly profess your faith in Jesus Christ, isn't it? And yet this man says that he didn't think of it as an awesome thing. Instead, he says the first word that went through his mind when he heard this was divorce. He said he couldn't imagine anything much worse than having a Christian in his own home telling him how he should live his life. Instead, this man decided he was going to look into Christianity, not to seriously consider it, but rather to absolutely disprove it. He was a well-respected and investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune. Uh, You might recognize his name. It was Lee Strobel. He wanted to disprove Christianity, and he knew where to begin. Someone had once told him where the power of Christianity was. A Christian told him, it's all in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the linchpin of Christianity. That's the thing that holds it all together. Otherwise, one commentator says, it's a house of cards. Below that one card, it all falls apart. And that's what we're looking at briefly this service tonight. The linchpin of Christianity, the resurrection. We'll see its power, first of all, in the past. Secondly, in the present. And then thirdly, in the future. And if you look at our confession, you'll see it addresses this topic in the same way. So first of all, the power of the resurrection in the past. The interesting thing about Christianity, compared with any other religion, is that Christianity doesn't just hinge on some teaching or some moral examples uh, to tell you how to live your life well so that you can be right with God. But instead, Christianity hinges on a historical event, the resurrection. And we need to realize that it's not just Lee Strobel and his Christian friend who thought that all of Christianity hinged on the historical reality of the resurrection. But the inspired Apostle Paul, as we read together, he confirms that they are absolutely right. As we read together in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. In verse 17, he says, your faith is futile. It means it's worthless. It's nothingness. It's basically smoke. He says, you are still in your sins. On judgment day, you're on your own if the resurrection is not true. And so that's what Lee Strobel set out to study. For two years, he did intensive research, reading books and articles and interviewing scholars and experts, both believers and atheists and unbelievers. He found the evidence to be extremely overwhelming. He came to the conclusion, absolutely, 
Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And you can read his books and listen to his talks and find out his whole host of arguments for why that must be the case. He looks at Christian sources and non-Christian sources, but I want to draw your attention to one of the most important sources he found. That's the text that we read together, 1 Corinthians 15. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is writing likely just a couple of decades after Jesus' resurrection, which by historical standards is incredibly soon after the event. And Paul clearly argues this isn't some myth. It's not a good example for our lives. It's a feel-good story. He argues it's a real and true event, a verifiable fact. He mentions Christ appearing to over 500 people, most of whom are still alive. In other words, go and talk to them for yourselves. And interestingly, starting in verse 3 and going to verse 7, he talks about sharing with the Corinthians something that he had first received. And it's fascinating to know that many scholars believe that this is an early creed, not quite as developed as the uh, Apostles' Creed, but a statement of faith that was going around that many scholars think that we can trace back to within a year, maybe even months, of Christ's death and resurrection. Based on the language, it doesn't seem like Paul wrote it, but that he's quoting it instead. A statement of faith not made by Paul, but by others, by many Christians that they all shared together. It seems that everyone knew and they confessed the tomb was really empty, that hundreds of believers had seen Christ themselves, and they were committed to this fact. They would defend it. They would research it. They would tell others to research it. They would defend it to their deaths. And we need to avoid uh, chronological snobbery, I believe one person called it. For some people, for some reason, uh, we can often think back 2,000 years and think people back then were gullible. They heard that somebody rose from the dead and they were like, all right, makes sense. That's not how it worked back then. You can read the accounts in the scriptures. People heard that someone had raised from the dead and they said, no way. They knew death was final. People did not believe it. And that's why Paul says, here are the names. Go and talk to them. Research it. Go and ask. This is a fact, a verifiable fact. All the evidence, Paul believes, pointed to the fact that the one who had been publicly executed was alive again. And for example, you can look at Acts chapter 2. There, Peter, after the Holy Spirit was poured out, he started preaching. And he referenced Psalm 16, which we read earlier, saying that the Old Testament already predicted that one would come, the Messiah would come, and he would die and be raised from the dead. King David, Peter says in Acts chapter 2, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and, Peter said, of that we are all witnesses. We can all confirm it. And do you remember, if you know your Bible very well, where was Peter when he preached this sermon in Acts chapter 2? Peter was standing in Jerusalem. That was the city who had seen Jesus Christ crucified. A few months before, he was on the hill, executed outside of town. That was the town that had Jesus Christ's grave in it. The people he was preaching to, he said, we are all witnesses, and you can go look at the grave. It's empty. You can ask around. This is a verifiable fact. Paul, likewise, went out with this message after his conversion, after he encountered the risen Christ. And he, too, preached it boldly as a historical fact, challenging people to study it and take it seriously themselves. 
Eventually, in Acts 26, Paul is brought before two political leaders, King Agrippa and Festus. And there, when Paul explains the gospel of Jesus Christ being crucified and raised from the dead and seems to be challenging them to believe in Jesus Christ, we read in Acts 26, verse 24, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, your great learning is driving you out of your mind. And what did Paul say? Did Paul get defensive? Did Paul just say, you need faith? I think often that's what we go to. We just need, we need more faith. And that's good. That's true. We do need more faith. But that's not the approach Paul takes here. Instead, Paul says boldly and confidently, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. And he expects them to believe him. He says, for the king knows about these things. And to him, I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. Can you picture how bold this is of Peter and Paul? Peter stood up in Jerusalem in public and he was defending. He was uh, professing his faith in Jesus Christ. The one who crowds had just yelled, crucify him. The one who was crucified by the Jews and by the Romans. Peter was taking a stand, confessing his faith in the risen Christ, calling others to bow their knees before the one who they had crucified. Likewise with Paul, going before great kings and leaders and saying, this Jewish guy who you killed as a criminal, you repent and you put your faith in him because he is raised from the dead and if you don't believe it, you go ask. We have countless witnesses. We have an empty tomb. The opponents haven't been able to raise one alternate explanation. And we know, uh, based on the growth of Christianity, that countless people were convinced by these facts. And Lee Strobel, he was convinced by these facts too. And so why could Peter and Paul be so bold? The reason why is because unlike all those who had gone before them, they didn't believe in a, a, a failure of a Messiah. They didn't believe in a dead Messiah. Others had claimed to be Messiahs and they had failed. They had been put to death. Jesus Christ too suffered and was put to death, but he didn't die as a failure. He died as a great conqueror and he rose again victorious. And so Peter and Paul have great boldness because they don't believe in a dead savior, but a risen savior who had conquered sin and death. This is what our confession says as well. By his resurrection, Jesus has overcome death so that he could make us share in the righteousness which he had obtained for us by his death. And so Paul and Peter, they were weak and sinful in themselves. But they knew in Jesus Christ, they had already been victorious. The crucifixion and resurrection had already happened. They were already more than conquerors. I love the way one Christian martyr once said it. Persecutors were rising up against them. They were saying that they were going to kill them for their profession of faith. And they stood up and said, the worst you can do is make me far better off. That is the power of Christ's resurrection in the past. As a historical event, your victory is won. Paul's victory, Peter's victory, my victory is won, and no one can take it away. It happened. It's done. And that equips Paul and Peter and us to go out boldly each day of our lives. Do you know what's going to happen tomorrow? I don't. 
Neither did Paul, neither did Peter. They didn't know how this would turn out, but they knew what had happened. They knew their sins were nailed to that cross once for all. They knew when Christ suffered, he suffered for them. He washed them clean of their sins, and he rose again victorious. And so they could go out with confidence and boldness. And brothers and sisters, we can too. Tomorrow, when we struggle with sin and temptation, we can go out with boldness. Our victory has been won in Jesus Christ. When we go out and share the gospel with our neighbors, we can go out in boldness and in confidence. Our victory is secure in Jesus Christ. Because the resurrection is powerful as a past event. But the power of the resurrection isn't just in the past. We also have confidence in the power of the resurrection in the present. So just picture for a second the body of Christ laying in the grave on the third day. For days, our Savior's body, it had been still and cold and lifeless. But then by God's grace, God the Father and Son and Holy Spirit bring him back to new life. His silent, love-filled heart once again begins to beat. His perfect atoning blood pulses once again through his veins. He breathes fresh air into his lungs once again. His soul returns to his body and he lives never to die again. As you look at this great savior who conquered sin and death, the enemy is too terrifying for us. We need to realize that it wasn't just Jesus that was raised to new life that day. The Bible is extremely clear. For God's elect, for all who by God's grace believe in Jesus Christ and are saved, when Christ died, you and I died with him. And when Christ raised, you and I were raised to new life. The Spirit fills us once again, and our hearts begin to beat. Our blood begins to pump, and we begin to breathe to a new life. We read this so clearly in Romans chapter 6. There Paul sells this with reference to the idea of baptism. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So again, we get this picture. Jesus Christ being plunged down into the water of judgment and dying. And you and I died with him. And then as Jesus in his resurrection is brought back out of the water, the air and life floods into his lungs. But likewise, you and I were once for all brought to a new life. And we know sin sin still clings close to us. Uh, But with Christ in his resurrection, we have already truly, uh, validly triumphed over sin. And that's why we say in our confession, by Christ's power, we too are raised up to a new life. And brothers and sisters, Lee Strobel saw this too. Uh, As mentioned earlier, when his wife converted to Christianity, this to Lee Strobel, uh, an ardent atheist, this seemed like a nightmare. But if you listen to his testimony, he explains that as he lived alongside his wife, who was now living alongside Christ, in in fact, finding her life in Christ, more and more, Lee Strobel found himself strangely attracted to uh, uh, the way of Christianity. He could begin to see the power of our risen Savior already, though he wouldn't have explained it in that way. When his wife professed her faith and promised to follow Christ, 
He found it beautiful how her day-to-day life was changed. How she behaved was beautiful. How she spoke. How she treated their kids. How she even treated him, who absolutely didn't deserve it. And it took Lee Strobel a long time of studying Christianity before he was willing to come to his wife and tell her that he thought he was beginning to believe in Christ too. But when he did, his wife wrapped her arms around him, and with tears of joy she told him, Honestly, I thought I was worried you were too far gone, but praise God. For two years I've prayed every single day the words of Ezekiel 36, verse 26. I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And Lee Strobel now shares with joy that he believes God powerfully answered that prayer, not just in the past, not just in the future, but already in the present. When he came to believe in Jesus, in his death and resurrection, and his free gift of salvation from sins, he boldly lived trusting in the power of God's resurrection. And more and more he came to see by God's grace the power of Christ's resurrection in the present. Lee Strobel shares that he was raised from the dead. His values completely changed. His character completely changed. His priorities changed, and especially his relationships changed. Everything began to change for the better. After a number of months, he said his five-year-old daughter, who, remember, used to be frightened when he would come home. His five-year-old daughter went and said to her mom, Mom, I want God to do for me whatever he did for Daddy. That is the power of the resurrection, not just in the past, but today. And we can see that's exactly what Paul's getting at in 1 Corinthians 15 as well. He, he talks about the historical fact of Christ uh, dying and raising in the past. But in 1 Corinthians 15, he lists eyewitnesses to the resurrection. So you can ask what they, they physically saw of Jesus. But more than that, so you can see how they were radically resurrected themselves by that fact. So Paul, for example, he mentions Cephas. So if Cephas, he's better known as the Apostle Peter. Peter, you might know he was a brash man. He was the man who, to his shame, denied Jesus three times on the night when he was betrayed. He was a man who was also radically transformed by the risen Christ. He became bold and convicted. And tradition has it that eventually he gave his life being crucified upside down for Jesus Christ rather than ever, ever uh, imply that Christ didn't actually save him and raise from the dead. Paul also mentions James. James was Jesus' own brother. You might know that James, during his lifetime, he didn't believe in Jesus Christ. But after Christ had been crucified and raised again, then James believed, and he was transformed. He became not just a small believer, a great believer. He became a pillar in the church. And eventually he gave his life for Jesus Christ as well. And then finally, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, look at me. In verse 9, he says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And notice, he doesn't say, I was the least. He says, I am the least. And yet, he says, the risen Christ appeared also to me, and by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And likewise, brothers and sisters, we can't think God's grace is in vain. It's not that Jesus Christ came and was crucified and rose to save us from the power of sin. 
and now he doesn't also save us from the power of sin in this life. It's not just that we're raised up to live with God in the future. We're delivered by the risen Christ to a new life with him right now by his presence and by his power. And as we're about to sing, it's not us, but rather it's through Christ in us. And that's the power of the resurrection in us today. I read a book recently that asked an interesting question about this topic. It mentioned that when the gospel of Jesus Christ went out, you can read about it in the book of Acts. When it first went out, it went out with signs and with wonders. The apostles did miracles. Christians prophesied and spoke in tongues, and they healed the sick. And all this, of course, as you likely know, it was to serve the gospel. It was to confirm it and show that the message was true. But this author mentioned that the gospel goes out today too, so then why did the signs stop? Why aren't there any more miracles with the message today? Well, this author argued, and I tend to agree with him, he argues that actually you and me, we're supposed to be the miracles that adorn the gospel. We are the ones who were raised from spiritual death to a new life from hatred of God and our neighbor to a profound Christ-like love of God and our neighbor. We are called to be the light in the world. And our community is called to be beautiful and compelling so that people say, we read in 1 Corinthians 14, I believe it is, that truly God is among you. As Jesus said, they will know you are Christians by your love. And so brothers and sisters, we need to ask what kinds of signs and wonders are accompanying the gospel in our lives. We heard about this earlier today too. It's not enough to just have the knowledge. It's not enough to just have the words. But this should transform our lives, the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lee Strobel confessed he believed in the resurrection. And by God's grace, uh, it was shown powerfully in his wife and then in his own life as well. Let's pray that we too might more and more adorn the gospel with transformed lives so people can look at us and see the reality of Christ's resurrection. Now, this is a question for all of us, and it's a question for you, Silas and Damie and Zoe and Amanda as well. As we profess our faith in Jesus Christ, we can say the words, and that's beautiful and profound. But do we say that we believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ with our whole life as well? And that doesn't mean, of course, that we will live perfect lives. I think one of the most profound ways that we can show we believe in a crucified and a raised Jesus Christ is by doing exactly what Paul does here. He speaks so honestly and so humbly of his failings, of his shortcomings, of his sin. He says, I am the least of all the apostles. He is heartbroken by his sin. Brothers and sisters, are we heartbroken by our sin? Because if we look to Jesus Christ on the cross, we see him suffering and dead, buried, and then raised again to new life. If we truly believe in him, we should be crushed by our sins. That this was the cost of our salvation. And if we're crushed by our sins, we should live like it. And that is the power of the resurrection, not just in the past, but today. Our ongoing sanctification. But as if that wasn't enough, uh, the power of the resurrection doesn't just exist in the past or in the present, but also extends into the future. Again, we see this in our confession. We, we see the power of the resurrection in the past because we confess that by the resurrection, Jesus has overcome death so he could make us share in the righteousness he had obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are raised up to a new life. And then finally, third of all, 
Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection in the future. That's our third and our final point. It's not just Christ who has raised body and soul in the past and not just us raised spiritually in the presence. But as we look to Jesus Christ and see he was raised from the grave, he was not left there. We also confess and believe that when you and I die, unless Christ returns first, that God will never leave your body in the grave. He will never leave my body in the grave. As we read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, Jesus Christ is just the first fruits. And God, he's working to bring home a full harvest. This is a beautiful picture. Just imagine a farmer, a farmer working tirelessly in his fields. He he prepares the soil, he he plants the seeds, he, he waters and protects his crops. And finally, you get to the point where the end is in sight. He goes out and he gathers up the beginning of the harvest, just the first fruits. Of course, he's incredibly happy with the beginning of the fruit of his labor. But this is just the start, just a taste of what he worked so hard for. He has some joy in his first fruits because he knows the rest of the harvest is coming soon. And that's the picture we get here of Jesus Christ. God is so pleased with Jesus Christ. He died and was cursed on the cross, but he rose up and received God's favor. But he won't be fully satisfied, God won't be, until Christ brings you and me, people from every tongue and tribe and nation, his whole harvest home. That is what throughout the Bible God is working to do. He wants you and me in his presence forever, delighting in him, worshiping him, glorifying him, enjoying him forever. That is what he's been working so hard for. Sinclair Ferguson explains this truth powerfully with another illustration from Scripture. So the author of Hebrews tells us that Christ isn't just uh, the one who goes ahead as in he's the first fruits, but he's the one who goes ahead in that he is the founder and the pioneer of our faith. And as Sinclair Ferguson explains, if you think about the world today, uh, we know most of it. Uh, There aren't a lot of pioneers going out. Uh, He said that there aren't many people going out discovering new places, are there? But he could think of only one modern example. He could think of the final frontier. Sinclair Ferguson remembers watching the moon landing. He remembers Neil Armstrong taking the first step onto the moon. And when he did, he declared those iconic words, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Likewise for us, Ferguson explains, Jesus Christ stepped out of the grave and defeated it. He stepped out of the grave in his glorified body, never to die again. One small step for Jesus, one giant leap for us all. We know that because he rose victorious and glorious, we too will raise victorious and glorious. By his resurrection, he conquered sin and death. He opened up the way for us back to God for all of eternity, guaranteeing that in his resurrected body, he'll surely bring us home in our resurrected bodies. We shall see him as he is. As we read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And brothers and sisters, when he set out to study it, when he set out to destroy it, that is what Lee Strobel found out. He heard that the resurrection is everything. 
He came to believe the resurrection is everything. He set out to disprove the resurrection, and instead he came face to face with the risen Christ. He discovered that the power of his death and resurrection, forgiving the past, transforming his present, and guaranteeing his future. What a Savior we have in the resurrected Christ. Amen.